This is the Skate Podcast on WEEI.com. Bobby Orr, behind the net to Sanderson, Bobby Orr! For the first time in 39 years, the Boston Bruins have won the Stanley Cup. Talking Bruins and NHL. Sure, old-time hockey. Like Eddie Shore. With writer and producer Brian DeFelice. Brian DeFelice is an emerging talent. Bridget Prue. Yeah, he's a little bit on the hot seat. Burn him! And WEEI.com Bruins writer Scott McLaughlin. Great Scott! Lace him up for some bees talk right now. I'm not gonna f***ing It's the Skate Pod on WEEI. Welcome into episode 95 of the Skate Podcast. I'm Brian DeFelice, joined by Bridget Pru and Scott McLaughlin. And guys, what a difference um, a change of venue and a couple of days can make because the last time we spoke, it was doom and gloom and bees were down 2-0 in the series against Carolina. And <laughs> and it's uh, now 2-2. Two two. Sorry, Scott. Gonna <laughs> Melvin, yeah, Melvin's Melvin gets, the first word today. Yeah, he's, got, he's, he's ready to go. Sorry. <laughs> So it's 2-2, two two, and um, guys, we got a series again, now. Yeah, I mean, it's crazy. Like, it, they were down and out. Everyone was burying them. You know, you go from getting dominated by Carolina in the regular season, then games one and two, you're outscored 10-3. to three. You've lost Hampus Lindholm to injury, your number two defenseman. Nothing seems to be going right. Power play struggling. Uh, you know, you're, you're changing goalies already, like, it's the, the idea that they had any chance of winning four out of five games and winning the series seemed insane. Like the talk on, you know, like on EI on the air and, and it was justified. It was like, are they even going to win a game? Like it was almost hard to see them beating Carolina at all. Cause they just couldn't seem to do anything. They, they had no answers. They, there didn't seem to be any major adjustments from games one to two. It seemed to be all the same problems. So you're like, well, uh, how on earth like is this going to happen? Especially now without Lindholm, and now here we are, you know, two games later, and it's tied, and the Bruins have the momentum, and now Carolina's the team and the fan base looking at it, going like, oh boy, like you know, where did this all go wrong? And they and they did it on Sunday in Game Four without McAvoy, who they find out. So you know, the way Bruce Cassidy put it after the game is they found out Sunday morning that something was amiss was his word with McAvoy and then got confirmation that he was going into COVID protocol, like literally just before warm up. So it seems like minutes before, maybe a half hour before at most. Um, so late adjustment, you know, like that's the type of thing where it's almost like a weaker team. And this is like a fair, this is an interesting point because I thought in games one and two, the Bruins did look weak at times, right? Like they, they would give up a first goal and then they'd immediately give up a second, you know, power play couldn't step up. They take a bajillion penalties in game two and they're, you know, they seem to lose their cool and their discipline. And since then it's like, now all you see is resiliency and see them overcoming adversity. And now it's Carolina losing their heads and Tony D'Angelo throwing a stick at Brad Marchand. Like it's, it's totally flipped. And you know, that, that win on Sunday was re- remarkable and like a real testament to this team to to learn that McAvoy news so close to game time, something that could easily have just been completely deflating. And instead, they they rally, they come from behind again, they give up the first goal once again, 
Uh, they also fell behind two to one, and they they just kept coming. And special teams is huge. I know we're going to get into that. Um, Brad Marchand was huge. The whole first line was huge, and you know, all of a sudden, it's it's series on, best of three. Yeah, I mean, Marchand had a point in every goal, and and he was involved in every single goal, and halfway through game three we're saying his first period he came out and you know he was he was getting frustrated he wasn't playing the way he needed to he comes he responds by the end of the game he's looking more like Marshawn and now maybe you see that he's kind of gotten back to his game a little bit more and you see the huge difference it makes when Carolina is a team that's getting you know getting more penalties and and you know whether that be you know just luck of the draw with the refs I it's hard to say, but when they, they've obviously most of those penalties were well-deserved, especially the Ajo penalties, high sticking Bergeron in the eye and four minutes could have been five easily. Um, but you see the frustration where you're, when you're spending a lot of time killing penalties and obviously someone like Tony D'Angelo doesn't know how to handle it very well. His emotional maturity is questionable, but you, you see the huge difference it makes when the Bruins are the ones that are on the power play. They're able to actually get things going. Um, and, and the power play looked good today. So uh, they go from being a team that's, you know, been outscored a ridiculous number by Carolina, the first five games that they played them to the, the next two games um, it looking completely different. And that's exactly why you don't really take too much stock in what happened in the regular season. Obviously game one and two looked like it might be more of the same, but then you get to you get later on into the series and you see um, just how the Bruins were able to kind of even things out, get back to the way that they know that they can play, even without McAvoy, which <laughs> Brian before the game, we had seen a report about it. And, and I remind me who it was, but he retracted it. It was Andy Strickland. Andy Strickland put out before the game. Don't be surprised if McAvoy doesn't play. Then he retracted it, and then it turned out he was right. So it was very confusing. Yeah, yeah. And, and in between was Cassidy's pregame press conference where he said there were no lineup changes. So That's probably it, why he retracted it, and, and, and so it was a very confusing situation to start the game. But, you know, in retrospect, I think maybe Cassidy might have been playing – you know, I don't think he knew that McAvoy was definitely out because I don't think he would have lied if that had already come down. But obviously at that point he knew something was up with McAvoy and there was a chance he was out. But I think the reason he says no lineup changes is so, you know, Carolina, they're they're over there. They're doing their pregame prep. And, you know, they probably see the Andy Strickland report too, just like everyone else did. And then they hear Cassie say no lineup changes. And I wonder if, you know, maybe Carolina, you know, starts to think, all right, McAvoy's in. And they go about, you know, planning like usual. And, you know, who knows, maybe a little bit, a bit of head games there, but. Um, which is yeah, was, understandable. And that kind of caught everyone by surprise because when we saw the initial, you know, reporting of it that, like I mentioned from Strickland, um, we were like, well, you know, he might be banged up, but he's, you know, he guys yeah. play through that. And it turns out that that wasn't even relevant at all. And it, it turns out it was COVID. Um, so that's completely different. And we're looking at five games from the onset of symptoms for five him to days. come five, five days. Sorry. I said games, um, five days from the onset of symptoms, which before we got on this podcast, we were trying to figure out if that meant he could be back for game six, which would be Thursday, which would be the fifth day, most likely, or if that means he has to 
go five days. And so that would mean Friday. And then he'd only be able to be back for game seven. We're not a hundred percent sure yet. Yeah. I don't pretend to be an expert in COVID protocol. I, I can read it just like anyone else, but there's, it seems like there's been guys who, you know, test out or, or like up in the air until the day of games at times. So um, yeah, so I don't know. And, and the other thing to add to this just on McAvoy while we're here is uh, he had taken a maintenance day Saturday as had Bergeron, Martian and Pasternak. But the, the word was that they're all just maintenance day and, you know, there's nothing to worry about. But like you, you wonder now was McAvoy's maintenance day because he was feeling a little under the weather. Like, was that the start of the symptoms or was it, was it something else? Was he banged up and needed the maintenance day for something else? So, yeah, I'm um, wondering if there's a way for them to kind of finagle because, you know, there was an off day and like maybe they can finagle that he started having symptoms, which he might have had mild symptoms if that counts um, before he ended up testing on Sunday. So there might be a way kind of to, to say the symptoms were onset before Sunday. Um, I'm sure they'll try it. Uh, they'll look into it. Um, so that's, that's going to be the difference between whether or not he can play in game six or game seven, but he's definitely not going to be able to play for game five. Lindholm though, well, has well, been... I, we sh- I should say too, he, he won't play game five, assuming he tested positive. We, we technically don't know that for a fact, but he wouldn't have been tested unless he was symptomatic because he's fully vaccinated. So it's not, you know, this wasn't like a random test that they broke up before the game or something. He was he was tested for a reason. Well, and they and they haven't ruled. Lin, I just want to say they haven't ruled Lind home out for game five yet. No, no, they haven't. So hopefully he's he's good to go. But you know, I was thinking before the game, like you know, Mac. If it was up to McAvoy, you know, I feel like I feel like he the last thing he wanted to do was to have to take a test because he may have known that he was going to test positive and he didn't want to not be able to play. But if I'm McAvoy, like the thing is he, he, he knew we had to, because, you know, what if you stay silent and then you spread it around? Right. So like he had, he had to test and like my, I'm not saying he wouldn't want to tell people to be like, you know, disloyal or, or, or like a liar or whatever, but he, he the, the, the competitor in him, I'm sure just wanted to be out there. And like, if it was up to him, he'd probably play through, play through anything to be out there. But like, you can't, you can't put your teammates uh, at risk of testing and being out of lineup either. And so that's, you know, uh, you know, because I know Whitney uh, tweeted something, Scott, earlier that you responded to just like, you know, they, they never should have tested them, but that's, you have to, if you're feeling symptoms, you have to test a for the player who's, you know, who has it, you know, you gotta be, you gotta, you gotta be cautious, but you know, you can't, you can't, you can't withhold information and then potentially spread it to your teammates. Now that's a concern for me because like, it's possible that like, you know, a couple other players can, can, you know, have what, what Charlie may have, you know, have it's that that's up in the air right now. Yeah. And especially because, so when you think back to that last wave that swept through, not just the Bruins, but the league that was late December so you're talking about, you know, four and a half months on now, which is not unheard of for people to get COVID again after that amount of time. Like if that wave had come in February, you'd be like, okay, two to three months, like guys still might be in the clear and, you know, have, have the antibodies. But like, now you're getting to a point where like, I think you're going to start to see, see some players get it again, who had it in December. And 
hopefully not with the Bruins. Hopefully it's just McAvoy and it's isolated. But like we're kind of at that point now where the I think those antibodies are going to be wearing off for a lot of those guys. And by the way, not you know I'm my desk here is wood. I'm knocking on it right now. But uh, David Posnack was the only other Bruin who did not get COVID during that time. So or at least that's that was on the roster then and is is still here now. So um, you know. Uh, keep pasta in a bubble what i'll say about that is that it's a different strain as well so you have you have vaccines that are for the original strain and and there's like omicron b2 or whatever it is so like whatever they caught back in december might not be what's what's going on right now so and i mean i've people i know have caught it several times i mean we've had a few people that we work with that have caught it in december and then caught it again in april so um it's completely possible and hopefully no one else has it or at least hopefully no one else is symptomatic uh because that will be that that would be what the the only reason to test would be um symptoms now the whole team is vaxxed and boosted right they're definitely at least all fully vaccinated the first time around i believe at least most of them got the booster i don't know for a fact if it was everyone okay so let's just uh let's let's backtrack a little bit um and talk about kind of how we got to this point so you know i i want to look if you're a bruins fan out there who just has blind optimism and you know when the bruins went down 2-0 now you're sitting there saying you know i told you so they come back well here's the problem you know you're talking about a team that the Bruins literally didn't have a lead against all year, got completely dominated in every facet of the game, and that carried over into games one and two. So if you're watching the game and breaking it down, it didn't look good. And the Stanley Cup playoffs, if you go to win a Stanley Cup, it's a marathon. But the individual series are a sprint. You don't just have time to drop two games off the top against a really good team. So I want to say that because there's a lot of Bruins fans bickering, bickering about like, oh, you guys are optimistic. You guys are pet. Look, just be realistic. Okay. Just call, watch the game in front of you and, and see what's happening. Now, when the Bruins went down 2-0, you know, I I definitely didn't think that they had a 0% chance to win the series, but I didn't think it looked very good. The two things I, 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 I uh, hung my hat on was two things, three things. Number one, the Bruins are going to go to Swayman and hopefully that gives them a spark. Number two, you're going back to home ice and a series is never over until a team loses on home ice. Number three, the Bruins didn't lose three games in a row. Well, I think they lost three games in a row at the tail end of the season. But besides that, the Bruins were very, very good at not losing more than two games in a row all year. Um, so for those reasons, it was, I was like, okay, you just got to grab game three and go from there. Um, and in game three, guys, you know, the Bruins didn't – it's not like they just won a game one to nothing with a, a, a shot from the point off Nick Foligno's shin pad. They won the game by scoring on the power play and getting their top guys going. And you finally, finally, finally flipped the script on Carolina because I wanted to see how Carolina responded to adversity. The question was, are the Bruins going to give it to them at, at any point? And they finally have. Now, the Carolina has still scored first every time they played this year. Law of averages, 
the Bruins hopefully can score first in game five. But Marshan got on the board. Pasta got on the board. Taylor Hall. Um, and then all that carried over into game four without McAvoy, obviously. But um, so now that the series has shifted back to Boston, you know, it, to Scott's point earlier, it's like insurmountable to think that the Bruins could win four or five against a very good Carolina team. But the thing, the thing about the playoffs that the regular season doesn't have is that momentum change. So all of a sudden, it's not just winning four or five, it's winning four or five, but now the momentum's on your side. Now they have the pressure and adversity. And so it's just been a, it, and to, to win game four the way they did, coming back from two different deficits without their top two defensemen is, was an incredible effort. Just very, very admirable effort by the Boston Bruins. Like they just, to Scott's point earlier, like, you know, Carolina was bullying them around and, and Boston just different team, different team. And that's why it was so frustrating because it was a lot of what the Bruins weren't doing in games one and two, in my opinion, as opposed to what Carolina was doing. And the Bruins have finally gotten to their game. Yeah. And you, and you talk about Marshand and it's, you know, we we're, we we're just three days ago talking about like him slumping and what's it going to take to get Marshand going. Well, guess who now leads the NHL in postseason points? It's Brad Marchand. It was he a has, quick turnaround. He has eight points in the last two games. <laughs> like that'll that, it. that'll do it. It's, and well, you 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 couldn't expect that he was going to do nothing this like in this series. Like it it was bound to happen. But he had been letting that like that agitated side come out, and not in a good way. Where sometimes he can use that to like motivate himself. He was actually just becoming frustrated and he wasn't using it um using that personality that he has to be persistent and and um you know make make other teams make those mistakes and and so yeah it's different and, and something that brian i think he tweeted this before the game was when you're missing your top two defensemen and especially someone like charlie mcavoy it kind of might be a spark Sorry, Daisy stepped on my <laughs> Daisy stepped on my keyboard and turned my mic off. Oh my god, this is why I should just record from the studio. <laughs> she turned it off halfway through me saying that, but um, I'll just restart kind of what I was saying. Oh, no, you, felt, you, you said you said that um, it Brian, yes, you, you you lose someone like Charlie McAvoy, and you're like, we got to go out there and win for him. Like, remember in 2011 when Nathan Horton went down. Um, you kind of see this, like this response that it's about, it's not just about, you know, us, it's about, we've got to win for this guy. We want to win for him. So there's a little bit of that that goes into it and you're missing your top two defensemen. And by the way, something that I was tracking throughout the game was how much ice time everyone was getting, because obviously Charlie McAvoy and Hampus Lindholm get so much time. So just looking at who, on the defense was getting a lot of time. Um, Brown only had about 13 minutes, but Connor Clifton actually had the most minutes out of anyone. He had over 20 minutes, but then you look at the, on, on the forward side of things, the Bruins were keeping a really tight bench. They're, they're cutting things really short. Um, and the, the two players who had the most time on ice out of anyone were David Posternak and Brad Marshawn. They both had just about 22 minutes of playing time, which is more than any defenseman. Um, so they had kept that bench really short. Fourth line didn't see a lot of time. Eric Holla didn't see a lot of time either. He was uh, 11 minutes. Um, Felino, I believe, was the shortest. He had nine minutes. So they were keeping those 
that fourth line in Eric Halla, really short. Um, Nosik, a little bit more than that, but that's because of his penalty kill. So in that last five minutes, I feel like he was out there the whole time. But they were definitely keeping a short bench, and, and they were in order to take up that time for McAvoy, they're spreading it out a lot. By the way, look at – you mentioned their ice time. Look at how much of that came on the power play. It's hilarious. David Postelak played 9.51 on the power play on Sunday, and Marshand played 9.30. 9.30. Like, that is a preposterous amount of time on the power play in one game, and that's that's what happens when you get nine of them, which this series – and I feel like these playoffs in whole, but we'll – you know, maybe we'll expand, but we'll keep it to this series for now. It's so many penalties. Like, it, it's – and I would say, what – 90% of them have been deserved. Like there's been some soft calls, some questionable stuff. Like obviously go back to game two, like that, that Carlos scrum that we talked about was stupid, but like most of them have been actual penalties, I think. And you go from, you know, you had a game, uh, game two where the, the Bruins were on the penalty kill nine times. Then you get game three. Each team had five power plays game four. The Bruins have nine and Carolina still had five of them. Like it's, it's just been crazy. Like there's been, especially these last two, three games, there's been so little five on five time. It's like, I, I thought, you know, going in, I like, I thought a special teams battle was not going to be good for the Bruins because their power play had been struggling. Carolina's the number one penalty kill. Like I thought like maybe you'll break even there, but that has really been the difference. The last two games is just, you know, Bruins have been, scoring on the power play, making Carolina pay. Uh, you know, they've got, what, two two power play goals each of the last two games, and their penalty kill has been a perfect 10 for 10 the last two games. Like, it's plus a shorthanded goal. So, like, it's been it's been huge. Like, that's the story. I mean, they're still getting outscored at five on five for the series. I think it's actually double. I think Carolina has outscored them 10 to five at five on five. But the Bruins have totally taken over special teams, and you know, probably uh, not the worst thing if the, the refs keep calling like this based on, on how these last couple of games have gone for the Bruins. Well, they'll, they'll call it like that, Scott, until game seven. I, and I'm not, I'm not, being, yeah. I, I honestly God feel I'm being dead serious. I think what happens is that when the officials talk with the league before a postseason, I feel like they say to the refs, guys, we want you to call it, we want you to call it tight like the regular season. Okay, we want you to control the games, don't get out of hand whatever, stick to the 2020 rule book, 2022 rule book. I'm sorry. And then if it's a game seven, what year even is it? Who knows? I don't know. Revert back to 1990. You know what I mean? Like seriously, because game seven is like, you don't, they they put the whistles away because they know it decides the series, but guys got news for you. A game one, two, three, four, five, and six can decide a series too. Just as much as a game seven. It's just that it's, it's, it's going to go home in that situation, both teams. Like, it just speaks to the lack of consistency. But, you know, today, I mean, if you're a Hurricanes fan or a coach or a player and you look at those nine penalties, I mean, it's really tough to argue a lot of them. I mean, like they were blatant. I mean, the one on Bergeron, I mean, it was clearly four minutes. The, uh, you know, Trocek goes over the glass. Like Carolina is doing a lot of penalties that aren't just like phantom hooks. Like they're, they're clear trips or this or that. And, 
you know, Rod Brindamore just like looks dumbfounded every time that something happens. Like, dude, like Bergeron's literally like leaking buckets right now from this. From his right <laughs> oh, in the in the, okay, so that brings up the fact after in the post game he's talking about uh, that he thought for sure that was goalie interference, and I, the whole time I'm watching that, there's no second that I thought that was actually goaltender interference by Jake DeBrusque. His stick, like he finds the puck, and I, there was nothing that I would in all my time watching hockey, see goaltender interference on that. What I thought he was doing was throwing a Hail Mary because the refing has been so inconsistent. Like, Hail Mary, we don't want this to be a tied game. We're going to hope for the best that maybe this is a crazy decision. But no, in the post game, he's like, like, oh, that was 100% like goaltender interference and he didn't understand the call. What are you talking about? Yeah, and he compared it to – Nino Niederreiter's goal that got called back. What, what was that? Was that game one or two? I, game one. Yeah. Um, he compared it to that, but it's like two totally different plays. On on the Niederreiter one, it was under he Allmark's pad. Him, and he pushed he him into the net. Yeah, he clearly pushed the whole pad over. But this one, it was never at any point under Ranta. Like he never had no. it tied up. It was loose the whole time. And, and like all Tabrus did was his stick did hit Ranta's pad, but that's not interference. Like if you're going for a loose puck and you're not pushing the goalie or turning him around or something, no, there's nothing there. It immediately came, came off, found the puck. And you know that it wasn't the same kind of situation as what happened with Niederreiter because he was able to score in a different part of the net. He didn't push the goalie didn't go into the net. The puck didn't go in under him. It was a completely different part of the net. The puck went in. And I really honestly thought I wouldn't have challenged, but I understood. I thought I understood why he did. I thought it was just a hail Mary and that he thought he had to, because the point in the game, he didn't want it to be tied. And it's a huge difference, but no. But the problem is Bridget. It's like, if you're wrong, that leads to, Another one of Carolina's penalty does no brainer, which is delay of game. So off the top of my head, it led to a five on three. You got the Aho double minor to Bergeron. You got Trocheck over the glass. You got Brindamore's uh, delay of game for challenging a play, and you had Tony D'Angelo just cross checking uh, Curtis Lazar in the face on a four check, like in front of the entire city of Boston. Which, by and the way, could have been more. It could have been more. Yeah, and it's so it's Carolina. They only have themselves to blame, and I believe. You know, similar to Boston down uh, down in Carolina, unlike what Bruce Cassidy says, which is up in Carolina. Um, they uh, Carolina. I've been first, laughing at that. Like. <laughs> Carolina had the first few power, power plays of this game, I believe. So they had an opportunity, and they had two leads. So you know, they shot themselves in the foot, just like the Bruins have done down in Carolina. And um, and yeah, like special teams is huge. And obviously, like Scott said, like the Bruins didn't have it going going into the series against the number one penalty kill as it is. So. Um, pleasant surprise, uh, in my opinion, that the Bruins power play has, has gotten it together here. Yeah, and, and another obvious no-brainer penalty that led to a power play goal was uh, Nino Niederreiter just taking out Craig Smith of the legs, like yep. just sliding right into him. And yep. that's what ends up leading to uh, to Pasenark's goal. Like it's, yep. Yeah, to your point, like, and like I said earlier, like a lot of them were, were, were obvious that these weren't you know, these that's, weren't ticky tack calls. It was the, the Hurricanes just not playing smart hockey. Yeah, so that's, and, actually, that's actually six that we've named because Aho was actually two. Yeah. It was a double minor. So that's actually six penalties that we've just talked about that are obvious of, of the nine. Yeah, I'm sorry for the distraction, guys. 
No, no, it's 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 a it's a welcome addition to the podcast. So, so Daisy, my cat Daisy's just been staring directly into the camera. <laughs> She's still just and she turned my mic off earlier. Um, but <laughs> trying to be serious. So the other the other thing too, guys, that I wanted to bring up was like because I do want to we we will talk about the Bruins' defensive effort. It was phenomenal, like phenomenal, like like Derek Forber and Connor Clifton have just been. Down in Carolina, like everybody had their hiccups, but those two players have really, really stepped up. I mean, Derek Forbert is blocking everything. And, you know, we didn't see it throughout much of the regular season what Don Sweeney went out to get Derek Forbert for. Like, yeah, he was a good penalty killer, but man, he has really stepped up in the playoffs. Connor Clifton is another one where sometimes in life, guys, like when you know that there's people in front of you that, are, that, that, that have a job to do and you're kind of behind them in line. Sometimes, like subconsciously, you, you just don't reach your ceiling. And then when you're challenged to step up and be that next man up, a lot of times most players rise to the, to the occasion and, and really hit their ceiling because they know that they have to. And that's what you're seeing out of, out of the defense. And um, as far as the forwards go, like that top line of Pashnak, Marshall, and the Bergeron, the biggest thing I hate about them being back together is just – everybody on the announced team referring to them as a perfection line every two seconds again. But besides that, they haven't playing pretty perfect anyway, since they've been together. They haven't missed a beat. Uh, that fourth line of Lazar and Chris, Chris Wagner and um, Nick Foligno, but the, the, the addition of Wagner, like it's just a very professional in your face fourth line. He has stepped up, which is not an easy thing to do after being out of the league all year. Curtis Lazar is being a pest. Foligno's being a good leader on that line. Uh, Charlie Coyle has really stepped up his game. He you know, a goal in game three. He's just, he's been that puck possession, big body guy. Craig Smith is working hard. He's just stink bitten. You're, you know, they just have a more professional Thomas Nosek. I know I said he sucked last podcast, but that's because he really wasn't bringing anything. He's stepped up in the last few games. So everybody's chipping in, not necessarily everybody in the score sheet, but every single line, you know, I think Halla has been quiet, but everybody's been doing, pulling their weight, I think. Well, let's not, let's not forget. Chris Wagner had just a little bit under the, the time on ice than Hala. Like they had similar time on ices. And so Cassidy hasn't, you, you don't notice Hala because he actually hasn't really been out there all that much. It's different than when the perfection line was split up and Pasternak was on the line with Hala and Hall. Um, he's been using Hala differently. Um, he's been getting less ice time. And Wagner has been so last time we talked, we, we spent a little bit of time complaining about Trent Frederick. And unfortunately for him, Wagner's come in and made a complete case for himself. And Curtis Lazar shows just how and Wagner have showed just how you're supposed to respond to people instigating things and by not being drawn into stupid penalties like Lazar had a chance today. D'Angelo was trying to bait him. It didn't work. Um, those those are guys who are showing their maturity in the playoffs when, you know, you, you have to be disciplined in those ways. And and uh, so Frederick wasn't able to do that. Wagner comes in. He knows what he's supposed to do. He does it. Uh, he's physical. He doesn't take a stupid penalty. And so I don't know if we see Frederick again, honestly. Um, I haven't noticed them missing him at all. And I, I like how the fourth line's been playing. I I don't disagree. I mean, Nosek moving up to the third line, I haven't seen a drop off. I mean, Craig Smith hasn't been doing anything, but I don't think it's any different than having Frederick on the third line to have Nosek there. 
Yeah, I think you'd you still want to see more from the second and third lines, and they got all jumbled around again on Sunday. Um, I think ended up with uh, I don't know. I've oh, I'm looking it up now, but they ended up with different combinations, and they so you got like uh, Hall, Coyle, DeBrusque. So basically, like Coyle and Halla flipping spots. Um, I think Hall and Nosek at one point they switched off between wing and center, and so they're still trying to figure that out and get something well, but, going from from those middle six forwards. And Charlie and, and, Coyle, you know, Charlie Coyle had almost twenty minutes of ice time, whereas Hall yeah. had eleven. Yeah, and Coyle got a lot of uh, a lot of power play time too, and actually got moved up to the top unit, um, and and made an impact there. Uh, was uh, a really good net front presence for for those guys. Yeah, he had about five minutes of power play time on ice. Yeah, and got and was the fifth forward when they started the third period of they had the five on three still. Um, they threw him out there, and he basically played point with. Um, I think Postnark might have like been out high too, but one with the five forward unit to start the third period. Um, I think you don't know, maybe don't notice as much that like those second and third lines still haven't given you a whole lot at five on five because, like I said earlier, there just hasn't been a ton of five on five play. Um, so that'll be if we actually get like a five on five game this series, it'll be interesting to see how that shakes out and and what that looks like and. Now, especially going back to Carolina, uh, you got to, you know, I'm assuming they're going to keep Marsha and Bergeron and Pasenar together. You can't split them up now, but now Carolina will be able to get the stall line back on them, which is their matchup checking line. That's their best defensive line. Uh, Cassidy kept those guys away from that line in Boston to the point of like even there was at least one occasion in, in game four, maybe two, where the Bruins forced that line into an icing and still didn't put out Bergeron for like the offensive zone face off. It's so like still kept put out like the second line or someone else instead to go up against stall. So Cassidy was really keeping them away from that line. And obviously that's going to flip now in Carolina where Brendan Moore is going to try to get the stall line out as much as possible, you know, close to every single shift. So we'll see how that goes. You know, they haven't had, the last time they had that direct matchup was the meeting way back in October because Pasenak wasn't with those guys the other two games and wasn't with them game. Well, game two, he eventually ended up there, but now you're going to get, you know, a full game of this and we'll see if, if that line can keep dominating, if they, if they can win that matchup, um, which, yeah, which, which the Bruins will, will need them to. Another combination that they used today, Scott was, um, uh, Halla Hall and and Craig Smith too at times um, and I you know and like you said I think that's you know it was just another combination to get some guys going. Um, one guy I wanted to bring up too who was just you know it's been on special teams both ends, but somebody who has you know if the Bruins do anything this spring, you can look at Jake DeBrusque and say he's a big reason why. I mean, yeah. you're down two zero in a series, and you're down one nothing in game three and you're on a penalty kill and he springs on a two on one with Jake, with um, Charlie, uh, Charlie Boyle and just gives him a beautiful saucer pass to tie the game. One, one, the momentum of the game, you know, he scores a huge goal 
it, like we talked about earlier, the, the, the goalie interference review goal, um, you're down two to one late in the second period. Um, you, you know, you didn't convert on a five on three earlier in the period. And, you know, who, who ties the game? Jake DeBrust. And, and by the way, that was a power play adjustment because they had Hall there. They took him off the ice for the faceoff, put DeBrusque in, and DeBrusque's able to outwork everyone to the puck. Yeah, and I, and I like that move. You know, it's something I've talked about earlier in the, in the year on this, on this podcast. Um, when the Bruins power play was struggling, you know, I, I mentioned, look, you know, when the Bruins had Tory Krug and, and one of the best power plays in the league for the last few years, Jake DeBrusque was oftentimes that net front guy. And, you know, he – I just think with Taylor Hall – you know, he just doesn't attack the net. Um, you know, they put him, they put him, you know, down by the goal line. And, you know, like, you, like, oh, you know, like you saw in game three when he, he fed past knack and, and it was kind of a muffled puck and pasta found him back door again for the return pass. Like, you know, that was a great goal, but that doesn't happen often enough with Taylor Hall in that unit. And that was kind of the anomaly. Oftentimes, you know, Hall just kind of, you know, he just, he just kind of stays, on that goal line, oftentimes uh, on his forehand, no, like always on his forehand. And there's just a lack of attack from, from, from the goal line. And Jake DeBrusque brings that. And you saw that in the tying goal today. And um, that's what made him, that's what made DeBrusque successful when he was, when he was younger, he found the 20, he got his second highest goal total, I believe in his career this year. So he found, he found his game again. And um, it's just interesting that somebody who wanted out of town and, you know, a month ago at the trade deadline, we were expecting to see him go and he stays. And we kind of, we kind of called it a trade deadline acquisition because somebody else is going to get him for the playoffs instead of the Bruins and the Bruins kept him for the playoffs. And what uh, a great non move. It turns out, it turns out. So just a big, uh, you know, a, a big, you know, tip of the cap to the brusque. He, he has been a, I guess a big spark is the way that I would describe him. Um, very, very timely production in the series from him. What I would say from him today and just in general in the playoffs so far, but in particular, you noticed it a lot today. He worked his ass off like he was working his ass off more than most guys were on the ice. You could just see it. And that was something that was lacking in his game when he had kind of lost confidence earlier in the season when he was a healthy scratch, when he was when it was reported by and his agent said that he wanted out of town. Um, there's a huge correlation with him between confidence and goal scoring and hustle. So he was really working his butt off today um, completely. And, and that's part of the reason why he's involved in that game three assist on the Charlie Coyle goal shorthanded and has his own goal in game four. Um, it was just so noticeable today, whereas different points in the season, it was completely the other way. So it's, it's really interesting to see how someone can do a full 180 on that in that aspect of the game. Cause I remember Brian earlier in the season saying, you know, that it doesn't cost you anything to work harder, you know, and he had it in him this whole time. So it's nice to see him actually, you know, find that level of confidence and, and that level, that work ethic again, and it's doing such a difference for the Bruins ever since he's changed well, his mindset. Well, he was waiting, he was waiting for, he was waiting for production to give him confidence, but the production doesn't happen without the work ethic and and that leads to the production which leads to the confidence and now he has that going and he has for a while but he certainly has it right now yeah and you know we had wondered like we were talking about this on on sunday skate earlier in the day you know we had wondered for a while like okay what happens if you have to move him off the top line you know is that gonna 
is that going to hurt? Would that hurt his confidence? You know, would you lose him or whatever? Well, he's been off the top line for, for two games now, and you haven't lost him. He's continued to play hard. He has a goal and an assist in game four. And, you know, I think like even when he got technically moved down to the third line, it it wasn't a demotion. It was because they needed to get that line going. And, and you know, Cassidy had said, like, Coyle and DeBrusque have had chemistry uh, at three-on-three three and on the penalty kill, as we saw on the, the shorthanded goal on Friday. So it was really more about maybe that's a combination that could work at five on five because Coyle and Smith hadn't really been working this series and hadn't been working for a little while before that. Um, you know, if you look at just look at like ice time in the series and the Bruins have like a clear whatever lines they're on, a clear top six forwards. They have six forwards who have average who are averaging over 16 minutes a game this series, and then the rest are all under 14 minutes. And he's one of the six over 16. So, you know, the, it's it's obviously all, all three of the top line guys. And then Hall, Coyle, and DeBrusque. Like, those are whatever lines they're on, however they're configured. Those are your top six forwards. And and he's one of them. And he obviously deserves it and has earned it. So I want to I want to touch on um, public enemy number one. And that's Tony D'Angelo. Because, uh, Don't even get me started on that. Well, well I'm going to because... <laughs> It's a fascinating storyline. I mean, I haven't seen somebody be this disliked by the by 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 a Bruins, um, you know, uh, fan base. You know, probably since P, uh, PK Subban's um, peak in Montreal. And you know, you could so the Bruins got they had their moments in games one and two, but for the most part, like we said, they they were pretty much just outworked and out hustled and outclassed. Um, but Towards the latter half of game two, specifically after the uh, Elias Lindholm, a Hampus Lindholm injury, uh, you saw you, you saw the, a switch flip in the Bruins, and yeah, Carolina kept taking it to them. But as the third period got underway, especially the last half of the third period, the Bruins carried play. They made a little bit of a comeback. Um, wasn't enough though. They dug too deep, too deep the hole. But you notice the Bruins start to just get pissed and agitated and into the series. They're like, you know what? Fuck these guys. Like they haven't been punched in the face. They're having their way with us. They're laughing at us. You got D'Angelo chirping Bergeron, blah, blah, blah. So that, that attitude going into game three started at the end of game two, in my opinion. And the, you could tell the Bruins were like, you could tell Carolina, especially with their post game comments when being asked how they feel being up too well. And they were just like, feels good. feels good. You know, it feels good. How else, how else would it feel? You could just tell the Bruins were like, well, you know what? These kids are getting a little cocky and we're getting pissed and we know we're going back home. And so as game three got underway and after that to Bruskel, but more importantly, after the Marshan goal to finally punch the Hurricanes in the face for the first time and give them adversity, you saw Marshan lipping to people. It's on. It's on. We're, we're, we're starting to feel it again. And the Bruins took care of business the game three and, you know, they're, they're crashing to bodies. I mean, um, uh, what's Riley Smith, Brendan Smith, um, you know, he got, he got, you know, taped up against the glass and you just saw Carolina start to unravel a little bit. And as game four progressed, um, Tony D'Angelo has the temperament of a chihuahua. I mean, you know, when you see a chihuahua on the sidewalk and it's just like the most, you know, uh, unfriendly dog, just like the kid just doesn't shut up. He's a, he's a loser. He's the most talented, like, like hothead I've ever seen play. 
And, um, you know, obviously this is, this is probably rich coming from somebody who watches Brad Martian is a huge fan of Brad Martian, but D'Angelo just comes across like Martian comes across as a rat, um, to opposing players. Marsh, uh, D'Angelo just comes across as a wine, a whining youth hockey player. It, because he, it, he's got no like emotional maturity whatsoever. I mean, people, and he's so hated among the Bruins fan base. I don't think the Bruins fan base is the only family base that doesn't like him because everyone knows what his background is off the ice and what he's done. Um, and you can, I saw, you know, if you read Marshawn's lips and, and some of the close-ups of him and D'Angelo going at it, which they've been going at it the whole series, you see Marshawn saying to him, you're a fucking racist. And then, you know, he's calling him a racist. You can read his lips and the people, people know, like we're watching, we know this guy is so talented. He's a great puck mover. He's great. Um, he's a great offensive defenseman. I almost even hate complimenting him, even though that's just a fact, like he's a good defenseman. Um, but he gets under defenseman. He's a good offensive defenseman. He's small and he gets bumped off the puck, but he's almost like grizzly in, in a few ways, but I I don't even defender, not as good as a defender. No, but you can see his offensive talent. And when you go, okay, well, the Rangers were willing to get rid of this guy, even seeing as seeing his production and, and whatnot, you know that he is just that kind of guy, even to his own teammates. Um, he can get under their skin. He gets rattled. Um, I, it's, it is like the Chihuahua syndrome where you think you're being tough, but you're really like you putting your chest out like that is actually making you look insecure. Um, and so he, that's just like how he plays and he completely lost his cool in this game. He threw, he throws a stick at Marshawn, which by the way, I thought that was a penalty um, and they didn't call it. So I don't it, it, it is. I think the refs at that point were just like ready to get out of there. Cause there's what 30 seconds left. Well, it's not a medical for sure. Yeah. Yeah. So like he just throw like, what is that? And I heard people, some people saying, you know, will he get supplemental discipline? I like a fine or something. I don't know if he'll get fined, um, but it, it just, by the way, kind I, of like I, I, a I better get fined because like everyone else who's committing a high stick these days is getting fined. There are like three more. And on Sunday morning off the Saturday games, like it's yeah, yeah Forbert got crazy. fined for a high that, stick already. Yeah. But Ajo's, you know, between us girls, Ajo's was very clearly accidental. I mean, that was, there was no, one I, I feel like some of the other ones have been accidental too. Like, I, I don't know. It, it's, it seems well, like high, fun. it seems like high sticking at least 75% of the time now comes with a fine yeah. as well. I mean, I haven't seen the ones around the league that you might be referring to. I mean, Forbert's was definitely, if you watch it on tape, it's like, yeah, that one was kind of intentional. I mean, Ajo's is, he was going for a stick lift. I mean, but point taken. I mean, if it's been happening on the league, I'm not going to argue with you on that. It seems like, you know, fair enough. Um, but yeah, it's just, uh, yeah, I don't know, Scott, do you have any thoughts on, well, I mean, the, the last thing I'll say about D'Angelo, you know, he's hated when that video that, that um, Bridget was, was referring to of Martian and people reading his lips, when the entire hockey world on Twitter, is galvanizing and, and, and supporting Brad Marshan and saying, Hey, I didn't, I saw one tweet. It was like Marshan. I was laughing. It's like Marshan has lived long enough to see himself become the hero or something <laughs> like that. And it's just true. It's like, everybody just knows that D'Angelo is just, and look, I don't want to, I don't want to bully him on this. So, Cause you know, that's not cool. But like at the same time, like, you know, he just, 
he isn't liked like by anybody in the in the NHL really. You know, besides you know his teammates who have to have his back. But it just it was just funny to see Marshan, who's like been the most hated player in hockey um, for 15 years almost, and and people have his back on this. It was just like okay, yeah, well, you're talking it, about something really disliked. Yeah, and I think you know when we make like the the Marshan D'Angelo comparison, it's it's also like I just think players around the league don't respect D'Angelo, and you know with Marshan it's Guys might hate some stuff he does, but like you see that NHLPA poll that came out last week or whenever it was, and Martian overwhelmingly wins with the question that was like, uh, who's someone you hate playing against but would love to have on your team? And he was by far the winner. And it's like, that's like, it might be grudging respect, but like, that's respect. Like, that's recognition that, like, damn, that guy is really good. And, you know, like, I'd, I'd love him if he was my teammate. D'Angelo doesn't have that. Like, it, it, I whatever you know, whatever his talents might be, like people might, I think, realize that. But I, I don't think he has respect. Like, I think guys look how at him could, and go, like, "How could you?" Like, yeah, after guys what, look at him and think, "I would not want him as my teammate." No, and it's interesting. I'm glad I don't know who asked Sarah, but when we had Sarah Sivian on our podcast to do the pre-series, um, our pre-series podcast, and and look into you know what the series might hold. Someone asked Sarah, you know, how, how have things been? Like, have you heard anything about how Tony D'Angelo has been fitting um, with the team, with the locker room? He's one of those guys that's known as a locker room cancer. And she said that they, that co- coaches and management told him, keep his mouth shut and, yeah. and pretty much just play the game. Like, don't, don't open your mouth about anything. And, and so that just tells you how fine a line he's walking where he's not even able to like, talk um and and you know speak like to his teammates how everyone else speaks to their teammates so maybe he's not a cancer there but it uh, he's just not able to contribute in the room because you never know what he's going to say well and and you know it's it's like to that point if martian can now drag him into some of this stuff and like now you know so d'angelo wasn't made available to the media after sunday's game but you know we'll see if he is in the next couple days but like he was now, in the uh, he was for game two or game game one or game yeah two, he, he was after one of them yeah well they but, like, said that they would scott but that uh stretching has to translate for him <laughs> so the, that, was, that was actually pretty funny when it having was. him translate for uh kachekov um did you watch it something they said it was a funny it was a funny interview yeah I yeah, he's—he seems like, like a good kid. At first, he was like standing there, like he was like a like a reporter himself, like he was gonna like ask a question. And then he like took on this like different approach, like he was gonna translate. <laughs> um, but yeah, so we'll see if like D'Angelo talks at some point, or if they just keep him away from the media. But like now, now if like his teammates are gonna be asked about stuff like this, and it's and and by the way, maybe, you know, we should maybe clarify like so the whole you know you're racist thing, assuming that is what Marshan said. Um, you know, I think Martian he said it the, more than once. Yeah, Martian after the game joked that you know he was asking about Mother's Day. Uh, Martian wasn't going to answer that, but um, just in case, like people don't know where that comes from, it's not you know because I saw some people on Twitter who were like, "Oh, what? So like just because he's a Trump supporter, you hate him?" And it's like, no, no, no. Like this is a guy who in juniors actually got suspended for racist comments. So, like twice in a season, he got suspended for violating the OHLs. Um, I forget what the exact policy is, but it was like their policy against racist, homophobic, and sexist language. He got suspended for that twice in one year. So, like, there's stuff actually on the record there with him. It's not 
It's not just about like a like politics or any of that. And one other one other thing about the Martian comparison um, that you know nobody's really made. We're just bringing it up. But somebody else on Twitter said something like, um, "I forget who it was, so forgive me if you're listening." But uh, that they said something like, "I'm, I'm tired of the of, like it, it's a it's an old the whole like um, yeah." I hate Martian, but would love to have him on my team. Probably is like it's like a very like just ridiculous statement. It's like it was something like he Martian either has I might be mixing these flipping him around, but in the last ten years he has like the sixth most points in the NHL and the fourth most points in the playoffs. It might be the other way around, fourth most in the NHL and then sixth most in the playoffs. Yeah. But it's like that's the kind of that's the kind of player on the ice you're talking about. And to, to, to the point Scott made about players respecting Marshan, like, you know, okay, yeah. So, you know, he, he got a little frisky uh, trying to, you know, give Brian County a little kiss a few years ago. And same thing with Komarov. And, you know, he had, he, you know, the slew of when he was, you know, whatever. He's played on the edge. Um, he has cleaned up a lot the last handful of years. But, you know, his talent is, simply put, he's been a top 10 player for a decade in the NHL. And for a player who I want to say was like a third round pick or something like that, or maybe even fourth round and started as a fourth liner, it's just like, you know, usually when you see somebody that you draft like in development and stuff, like a Fabian Lysel, you watch a Fabian Lysel, and, and, and if somebody were to say, this kid could be a top 10 scorer in five, 10 years, you'd be like, yeah, I mean, it kind of makes sense. Like he's pretty dynamic. You know, Martian was just like a true, like kind of blue collar story at the league. So, you know, it, it's out it's oranges with these two. Here, Brian. I, I here's the difference. Marshawn's never been kicked off a team. Um, so, and this is why I said, yeah. don't get me started. Cause if you get us started on Tony D'Angelo, he's just going to like, there's no, there's no way that it ends where I'm not just like completely just, just in a bad mood after talking about him. Well, let me, let me put you in a good mood and, and uh, get you talking about uh, Jeremy Swayman. Let's talk about the goaltending and, and uh, he's made some, you know, you look at the shot totals the last couple of games and, you know, Carolina has let the world on fire, but Swayman has made some real timely saves. Obviously the goal at the end of game three to make it from four to one to four to two is kind of a, you know, head scratch, but he's made some key stops down low in the slot. He's made a few breakaway saves, some, some, some key saves with guys breaking down the wing. Um, you know, he, where, where, where Linus Allmark uh, struggles, in my opinion, is yes, he's big. Yes, he covers a lot of net. Yes, he makes a lot of the saves he's supposed to. But when it comes to scrambling, he's not as athletic as Swayman. He's not as quick um, in the crease with 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 net mount scrambles and finding loose pucks. And I just I feel like, in addition to making a, most of the saves he's supposed to make, um, Swayman's made some saves he probably wasn't supposed to make and, and you weren't getting that in games one and two. Which is, it, it's funny because we had this conversation, we've, we flip-flopped and that's because, you know, different months, different goalies were hot, but back when Swayman was hot and won rookie of the month, which I think was February, um, we were saying that this is the guy you want to start the playoffs because he can steal your game and all Mark can't. Well, to end the season, all Mark was playing better. So you're like, so coaching questioned it but the the same thing remains true he's the one who can like you said make those plays make those saves that you otherwise wouldn't probably get from Allmark he's the kind of goalie that steals you a game 
Um, and Olmark is just someone that stands pat. He's a good goalie, but he's not that like hot playoff goalie that can actually win you something on their own. And, and especially without either of your top two defensemen, you need a goalie that can steal a few saves that a, a lot of other goalies wouldn't make. Yeah, absolutely. Like, and like you said, like it's swung back because down the stretch for, you know, probably the last month and a half, like if you'll get, you know, stuff like high danger save percentage, Allmark had been much better. Like Swayman was better early in the year, then came way down where that was, you know, a big part of his struggles down the stretch. And Allmark came way up to, to where you're like, okay, like he figured it out. And, you know, I don't think games one and two, it's not like, as we said, like Allmark wasn't horrible and it wasn't like he, you know, was giving up a bunch of goals he shouldn't give up or anything, but he wasn't making the, those clutch saves. And, um, you know, I think there, there was the one soft goal, you know, the Trochik backhander off his helmet, but like there were a couple others where it's like, uh, like he might've had a chance there, you know, the, the two on one, he kind of was like a little slow getting across and maybe he doesn't get it anyways, but, uh, you know, you could have really used a save. Aho shot on, I think it was a five on three power play in game two. Yeah, it's a five on three, but it's a shot from out high. And he had time to get across and it kind of just beat him between his pad and the post. And it's like, those are plays where, you know, in the playoffs, you're just going to need your goalie to make one of those saves. And Swayman hasn't been super, like, he hasn't been under assault in these two games by any means. I think the Bruins defense has done a really good job stepping up and making these, you know, his first two playoff starts as relatively easy as a playoff start gets, like, which is to say still not easy, but you know, like he, he isn't having to, to, you know, completely stand on his head either. Um, But he has made those timely saves and like, that's, that's huge because even if, if you're only facing, you know, two or three really tough chances a game, like you've got to stop, you know, two or even all of them and, and give your team a chance. And, and he's had a couple of those, like, like Brian mentioned, you know, odd man rushes that uh, he's, you know, I'm, I'm not sure Carolina's done the best job on them to like really test them, but he's been there and he's, he's been where he has to be. And uh, you know, it does seem like it's energized the team or, you know, at least, been part of this turnaround. I don't think that's single-handedly changed stuff. There's been so much that's gone into this, but I think it's fair to say that that's definitely part of it. And going forward, guys, like, you know, it's a best of three now. And, you know, if, if I'm, if I'm being an impartial viewer to this series, I'm, I'm, I think the goaltending advantage is, is lies with Boston. I mean, because the hurricanes too have their issues. I mean, they've, they've, They've started, you know, two different goalies the last two games and both both in losses. And you know, if I'm the Hurricanes, I don't like two. I don't like the first two goals that Ranta gave up today. I mean, the Burrs are on one and tight. I mean, Pasta has the puck behind the net, kind of throws it, and you know, it, it's a tough play for the goalie to track. But and you know, it, you're, you're hoping for some better defense on Burrs on there. But you know, it, it's it's a it's a forehand, it's a backhand forehand slider through the five hole. Um, goalie's deep in his net, sticks not on the ice. That's a tough goal. 
the loose puck in the was it the brusque goal? The puck's you know sitting loose between his his his, his knees again comes from the back of the net. But so the Martian goal, no chance. Pasta goal, no chance. Paranta, but um, they have some questions too. So it, it's going to be interesting. I guess this kind of leads me to ask you guys. Um, Maybe if you're Carolina, who are you going with in Game Five? And furthermore, how does how do you view this series um, in the in the final three games here um, potentially? Yeah, I, I wonder if they go back to Kachekov because to your point, Ranta wasn't great Sunday at all. Like that that is two goals that I feel like he he had a chance on it and and probably should have been better on. Um, you know, and obviously the one big wild card is still if Frederick Anderson returns at some point this series, but he's still not practicing. So he's he's been on the ice, but he hasn't had a full practice with the team yet. Um, well, yeah, I think both teams are practicing Monday, so we'll see if, uh, you know, if he's on the ice then and, and with the team. But I think you, at this point you'd have to say he's probably out for game five and go from there. So – yeah, that you know, Carolina is definitely the team that has more questions there right now. Because if you're the Bruins, you just keep rolling with Swayman as long as he's playing like this. And you know, I think of the of the four goalies we've seen so far, he he's probably the one you'd feel the best about. I think he's had you know the best two games without question. Yeah, and it's kind of one of those weird. It's it's a weird situation because I I believe. The stat is that this is the first time ever that four goalies have made their playoff debut, their fir- their play- first playoff start in the same series. So uh, it, it was gonna kind of gonna be a, a guessing game from the beginning. Um, no one has proven playoff experience before. Uh, Kachetkov, Ranta, Allmark, and Swayman, all of them. It was you know it was gonna be a feeling out process. And Ranta did not play his best game in Game Four, so I wouldn't be surprised, like Scott said, to see. Kachetkov come back in net for game five, especially just based on some of the things Sarah was saying and some of the things you could see in the games that he played, which was the team plays a little bit different in front of him. He plays with an edge himself. Um, and so I wouldn't be surprised if they go back with him and it would be that rookie v rookie uh, game five matchup. Where's your guys' confidence in the Bruins these last three games? Obviously it's contingent on, okay, does Lindholm go in game five? Um, we thank McAvoy's out game five, uh, best we know. So, and potentially game six. So if, if you're out, if, if you're going into these final three games and one, if not two, you have no McAvoy and maybe one, you don't have Lindholm, um, you know, how do you guys feel going down to Raleigh? I mean, like I said earlier, like you have to think that the Bruins have to score first. I mean, this is at, at one of these games, I mean, you got three games in regular season. You got your seven games so far this year between these two teams. Carolina has scored first every time. I mean, like at this point, it's like you're like, well, something has to give here, or maybe it just keeps not. But um, you know, so, so like I said, we don't know certain person key personnel um, availability. But where where are you guys at right now uh, with this best of three? I mean, you, you certainly you certainly feel better because the Bruins clearly have momentum right now, but. I definitely still have questions as well and, and see ways it could go wrong. Uh, mainly that I don't think, I don't think you can win an entire series being so dependent on just having such a lopsided advantage on special teams. Like I, 
some point, and it might be the you know game five down in Raleigh with the home crowd, where you know they're not going to call as many penalties in Carolina. They, they might just not call as many penalties. Period. They might call more on you again, like game two down there, um, and that kind of evens out. I also think. I have too much respect for Carolina's penalty kill to think the Bruins are going to keep scoring two power play goals a game. They, they might, their pen, their power play has looked much better, but it seems unlikely. I would expect some adjustments from the hurricanes. Um, I think, you know, there's definitely a possibility that Carolina's power play breaks through. Like at some point, I think you're going to need more five on five where, as I mentioned before, you've been doubled up so far at five on five in the series. Um, I think especially in Carolina, that top line's job gets much tougher against the stall line. So you're going to need them. You're going to need them to not just break even, but to win that matchup and score goals. And you're going to need one of those other lines, at least one of those other lines to, to get going and start to find some offense. And, you know, again, we like what the fourth line's doing and they've drawn some penalties, but they're still not scoring. And your middle six forwards are, moving around so much that like it's hard for them to even really find any sort of momentum there. Um, but you're going to need someone to, to find that. I, I still feel like if the Bruins are going to win this series, they're going to need one of those second and third lines uh, to get going at some point here and, and pot a couple five on five goals. And it's hard for me to have a ton of faith in that happening. So I feel a lot better. Uh, I picked the Bruins in seven before the series. I'll stick with that. But there are definitely things that I could see going wrong where I look back at the end of the series and say, like, yeah, that 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 doesn't surprise me. Yeah, well, my prediction was Bruins in six. And after last podcast, we had a check-in on where we thought our predictions were. And I said, wow, this really isn't, <laughs> this isn't looking like it's going to go Bruins in six, but now look at this. It, we're, we're in a position where it could happen. Um, I'm not sure it will. I, I still probably feel like it's, it's more of a, a seven game series. Um, but if the Bruins could win at home in game six, um, you know, that would be great for the Boston fan base. So it could happen it's still possible and the series is tied. So um, it's, it's hard to say the first four games haven't shaken out exactly how anyone would have thought either. So the goaltending matchup is obviously huge when the Bruins get McAvoy back or Lindholm back changes everything. So game five down in Carolina, I wish we could go Scott. Um, I wish we could go. Cause it's going to be a really crazy game. I am already sure of that. So um I'm guessing we're going to be recording again after game six uh, and hopefully it's uh, a positive podcast rather than our post game two podcast. Or, yeah. Or it could be prepping for a game seven. I mean, I think um, Bridget, I'll, I'll say this. If the Bruins can find a way to win game five, you know, Carolina dropping three in a row, including the latest on home ice and having to go back to Boston with an, absolutely amped up crowd and Bruins team could be a very disheartening situation for them to be in. Uh, but the, the, my fear is I feel like one of these games has to go to overtime soon. And if they do like that's where the Bruins um, injuries in the back end could, could hurt them. And so 
Uh, we'll see. I mean, if the Bruins, if the Bruins have to play, you know, the majority of these three games, though, Charlie McAvoy, I think it's, I think it's a tough ask to have them win this series. I just, it's, it's difficult. And, um, but um, I, I truly just don't know how it's going to shake out the Bruins at this point. You have as much of a chance to win as Carol. Well, maybe Vegas would say not because of the home ice, but for what it's worth, the Bruins is a two, two series and it's anybody's series in my opinion, but the Bruins health in the back end will be a, big reason that they've that they lose if that ends up the case in my opinion yeah what what worries me is like kind of towards kind of through like the middle part of the second period on sunday um when it was 2-1 carolina the bruins were they were on the ropes a little, little bit like so they weren't giving up a bunch of great chances but they're spending a lot of time in their own zone and like one line after another was getting pinned in struggling to get the puck out when they did get it down the other end. They weren't spending a lot of time there. And it was like, man, the, the, like this is kind of definition of bend, but don't break like that. They're bending quite a bit here. They're not breaking to their credit. They don't give up the third goal to go down by two. And then it finally takes that run of power plays that they get to, to turn the game around. But I worry like if they get into a game that has that kind of long five on five stretch, you know, the collective toll, even, again, even if you're not letting Carolina get to the middle and get to the front of the net and you're doing a better job of that, the toll of just spending like one shift after another in your own zone, defending, 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 just trying to get it out to get a line change like that at some point you're, you're going to break. And it felt like that was maybe starting to come before they got bailed out by a few penalties there. And, and to that point, Scott, like, if you have no McAvoy and Lindholm, and like we've said, we think Lindholm could be back for game five, but if you don't have those guys or you have one of them and not the other, like, you know, you can, as a collective defensive unit and five-man unit, you could you could do that bend but don't break and really collapse and protect the front of your net. But at five on five, you're not going to have that transition game that they bring you. I mean, McAvoy and Lindholm, they're your two biggest, you know, defense, defense, offense, puck movers. I mean, Grizzly too, but, you know, so if you don't have those guys moving the puck, that's why there's a lack of five on five, um, you know, time of possession for the Bruins. And that's where, that's where you really miss Lindholm and McAvoy because you can get guys to defend around the net without them. Obviously they're really good at it, but it's, you miss them big time in transition. So again, if you don't have them, it's going to be a tall ask to win the series, especially uh, with a disadvantage of five on five. Um, did you guys have anything else uh, before we, we check out? I wanted to make a note of because I've been also tracking the the, the face offs, um, especially Bergeron in particular, and he had a way improved game at the face off dot today. He went seventy percent. The rest of the team went under fifty, and and the team as a whole went forty six percent from the dot. But Bergeron was incredibly successful today. Um, he kind of seemed like he hit an, another gear in game four. So I just wanted to highlight that fact. And some of those face-off wins were, by the way, he got help from Marshawn, who was crashing in on the face-offs and whatnot as well. But yeah. some of those face-off wins were key well, during and, the power play. Who was he not facing on face-offs on Sunday? Stahl. Wasn't, wasn't facing Jordan Stahl. So. But yeah, that's just, I, I wanted to just take note of Bergeron's improvement um, in game four. Yeah, and, and Bruce Cassidy said what after the game, Scott. He's the oldest player on a team, but he, he's playing like the youngest oftentimes. Yeah. I mean, Bergeron, Bergeron's brought it. I mean, you know, he wasn't – he and Marshand obviously weren't really feeling it offensively in game one. 
you know, he had a couple goals in game two, one on the power play, one off his skate, but, and, you know, he was struggling in the draw against Eric Stahl. And that's going to, that, that challenge will be brought up again, like you said, in game five, but, you know, Bergeron's, he, he's been leading. He's been leading. Um, I think we're good there. Probably, probably, you know, hour and a half in. So, yeah. Um, happy thanks. Mother's Day. Happy Mother's Day, of course. Yes. Scott, Mrs. McLaughlin, happy Mother's Day. Mrs. Prue, uh, to all the listeners out there, happy Mother's Day to yours as well. Um, lucky for me, my mom's birthday is a week after Mother's Day. It's oftentimes falls in the same two-day stretch. So she, she's tricky, that one. So she gets a lot of gifts and flowers and cards in a week stretch. Yeah, my, my, my mom's birthday is the end of May. So same kind of thing. It's like um, all, all month, you know, you got to gotta make yeah. sure you have you have stuff for both ready to go. So that'll wrap it up for episode 95. Thank you for listening. We'll come back with episode 96 after game six. We'll talk to you later.